Okay. Please stand with me and we'll start with a prayer. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. And open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. And plant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments. That trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all-holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. All right, Christ is in our midst. Amen. Wherever two or three are gathered, he says, there I am in the midst of them. So, okay, there's more than one, so we're good. Um, I am going to... There's a topic I want to cover with you guys today before we resume creation. And for those who have missed sessions, um, I just uploaded the last three catechism sessions, if you need to catch up on them. That's, uh, that's four and a half hours of <laughs> talks. Maybe not quite, because we, we ended like 15 minutes early last time. But those are on the website. If you go to stpaulorthodox.org, there's a homilies and audio page. And there's a homilies playlist, although it doesn't look like it's updating, so I might have to change the, the program we're using there for that. But, and then below, you'll go to the catechism sessions. And the older ones will go, are going through materials that we will be covering again. In this, in this cycle. The cycle always starts right around the beginning of the school year. And then we just keep going until we finish. And, uh, and then start over again. So I want to talk about um, developing the orthodox ethos in your, in your home and in your life. Um, this is a beautiful word, the word uh, ethos. Have you ever heard of it? I think there's a brand of water that's out there. It's called Ethos. So you, maybe you have, like, oh, yeah, it's my favorite uh, spring water or something. But Ethos is a beautiful word that, that basically is, it's, a, it's kind of a blanket term for, like, atmosphere, environment, and, and what you do in that atmosphere or that environment. Ethos. And so if you're talking about an orthodox Ethos, you're talking about an orthodox environment and manner. When you step into an orthodox church, even just from, from the narthex, which is the entryway into the church, you know, the, usually you have, in the West they call it a vestibule or a narthex. You step in and then you transition into, uh, into the church. And when you step into the church, there should be, a sense of holiness, a sense of sacredness and holiness. This place is set apart. It's holy. That's what the word holy means, set apart. And um, holy doesn't just mean like super virtuous. You know, he's a holy guy or something, and, well, he's better than the rest of us. Actually, holiness only comes as a result of self-emptying, <laughs> So, you know, like our Lord, 
How did he prove his love for us? By becoming nothing, basically, in the eyes of the world and not making sense to a lot of people. What? No earthly kingdom? We have no room for that. You know, we want, we want, a, we want an earthly kingdom, a conqueror. But so holiness is not just about stepping up the ladder, for example. Um, holiness actually comes as a result of humility. And I always like to tell people about holiness is that holiness never strives to bear, strives to bear witness to itself. Like I talked to you when we talked about the Holy Trinity, each of the persons of the Holy Trinity are always bearing witness to one another. And those who are holy, we call them saints. The word in Greek for holy is agios. The word for saint in Greek is agios. Same word. So he's called agios Ignatius, Saint Ignatius or Holy Ignatius. The word saint comes from, that we use in English, comes from the Latin term sanctus, which means also holy, sanctified, you know. Um, but, but anyway, when you think of holiness, you, don't, you, you do think of, of something otherworldly, or I like the term transcendent. Something that is, because it's not bound up, completely bound up, in the world, and especially the fallenness of the world. And when we talk about the world using biblical and kind of the patristic terminology of the church, when we talk about the world, oftentimes as such, we're talking about the world as having fallen subject to corruption. And that's why you can say things like be in the world, but not of the world. Um, But holiness is not is not something that, um, you know, is a source of pride, but actually a result of humility and self-emptying. And that's, that's, important, that's kind of an important paradigm for us to learn because when we, when we think of holiness, a lot of times, again, we think of what? Virtue signaling, almost. Like, oh yeah, he goes around like he's better than everyone else. Or... You know, we even hardly have a paradigm for for authentic humility. Who could be that humble? Really? You know what I mean? We question the authenticity of other people. Just proves that we're suspicious and not humble ourselves. Forgive me. But but anyway, but we want to create an ethos that in our homes and in our lives, that is a result of the holiness of God that is broken into the world. And the holiness of God that is broken in the world is the holiness of the, the transcendent one who reigns through all of eternity. So there is a sense of highness to it, of elevation, of one, wonderfulness, you know, and amazement. But also, in Christ, is, Christ presents to us the ultimate paradox. The uncreated, most amazing, and the best one ever. Who's better than God? No one, right? Puts himself below everyone else to lift them up. And we want to create that sense in our lives and in our homes. And one of the ways that we do that is becoming informed by what we do here. We don't do what we, don't do what we hear, do here just because it's done here. What we do here actually informs us 
as to how we should live when we're not here, when we go home. And uh, I call it connecting the dots. So we pray together here and we worship together here. And St. John Chrysostom refers to the home as a little church or a domestic church. Meaning, and I like to, another thing I like to tell people all the time is, you're no more a Christian here than you are when you're someone else, when you're somewhere else, sorry. So you're at home and maybe, I don't know, you're not used to praying at home. Same person, you just need to start praying at home. You know what I mean? You need to integrate, and it takes time, integrate the way, the manner, the ethos of the church into your life at home. And it takes time, it takes transition, especially for those of us who have been raised, you know, 20, 30 plus years um, with a different ethos, you know, one of compartmentalization maybe, or one that is a result of maybe the casualization of Christianity. And uh, so I want to talk to you about developing the Orthodox ethos in the home kind of putting it all together. And uh, it starts with, what do we do when we walk in? We venerate the icons, of course. We get situated, but what's the first thing that we do together? We start praying the prayers together in the church. And that's how we, next to coming, showing up here, that's how we begin our spiritual life at home by taking the prayers of the church and beginning to use them at home. You know, there were like a, like four or five of you guys the other night when I was talking about praying a little bit after Vespers, maybe the Thursday before last. And I was talking about how you can feel self-conscious, especially when you're starting to use the prayers. Like I remember when I, when I was inquiring into orthodoxy, this is the first prayer book I got. I still have it. It hasn't completely disintegrated. It's brown on the sides. It's going to, you know, pretty worn out. But um, it said a prayer book for Orthodox Christians. And I was like, I'm not an Orthodox Christian. Can I even use that? You know, there's that sense of self-consciousness. Like, wait, am I, is it okay for me to do this? And am I doing it correctly? And, you know, how little is too little? How far is too far? And that's, that's where I come in in your life to help you with those kinds of things. And, um, you know, you have to be willing to, to, to be instructed and to hear, yep, yeah, put on the gas a little bit more and hit, oh, no, now you need to hit the brakes a little bit. You don't need to make adjustments. But, um, but the purpose of prayer is, well, St. Saint, uh, Saint John Climacus says, union and communion with God. Con, no, converse and union with God. Sorry, converse, interaction, and union, entering into the presence of God. And the church gives us a means to do it. Most of us are far too scatterbrained and disarrayed to know how to orient ourselves to God. Go, go pray for a little while. What are you going to do? Uh, I mean, you can say, dear God, I'm supposed to be praying right now. I'm not quite sure what to do and that's and that's okay or as I said during that little mini homily that I gave after Vespers 
There are times when you're just not feeling it and you can say, God, I'm, I'm struggling. I don't know how to pray right now. And that becomes an authentic form of prayer. But also when you're not, when you're not sure what to do and if you're learning to trust the church and you're believing that the church is inspired by the grace of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to take the prayer book and open it up and say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Glory to thee, our God. Glory to thee, O heavenly King. And you're going to tell yourself, nope, you're not performing for yourself. You're not performing for anyone. But you're praying because the church is teaching you how to pray. O heavenly King, comforter, the spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, O good one. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. You know, you learn those prayers. And they, be, they are the common inheritance and the common, common manner of those who have been engrafted into that living vine. That I was talking about earlier today. So those words that are given to you are given to you so that they might be your words. But not just your own. Because when we pray as those who are Orthodox or who are becoming Orthodox, and we use the words of the church, we're never alone in our prayer. We're joining ourselves with the church by using the prayers that we've been given. That doesn't mean you cannot use extemporaneous prayers. You can. And I have a really lovely um, article about the kind of the benefits of a prayer rule. And I'll, I'll talk about the word rule in just a second. The Benefits of a Prayer Rule by St. Theophon the Recluse. Um, St. Theophon is famous, a famous uh, Russian Orthodox writer, I think of the 19th century. I get the dates mixed up. Some, with so many, so many different people who lived at so many different times, you know. It's hard to remember the dates of all of them. But, uh, but St. Theophon was a bishop for a very short time who retired to live in basically in quietude. And he spent the rest of his life writing letters and some books on the spiritual life. And uh, that's why it's called The Recluse. And uh, anyway, um, he, uh, he wrote this, this little beautiful thing about and helpful instruction on the benefit of a prayer rule. And he basically says, you learn how to pray by using the, the prayers that have been given to you. This becomes our, our vocabulary, our parlance that we use. As Christians, the biblical language, the language of the Psalms in particular, and even encourages us to familiarize with the Psalms. And we are okay. It's okay as an Orthodox Christian to read the Bible. When I first became Orthodox, I was afraid of the Bible. As an ex-Protestant, I was afraid I was going to misuse the Bible. Like, because I just felt like I used it as like a self-help tool almost for so long, like, I like this verse, and I realized I was proof texting the Bible. You know what proof texting means? It means pulling a text out of, of its context and using it however, kind of however you want. What it means to you. People do that, you know, when they do bad theology a lot. You could use the Bible to prove any point you want, you know, by just pulling the right verse out of context and using it how you want. And I did that a lot. I mean, we, that was kind of our thing. We would just say, oh, this verse really speaks to me. And I'm not, I can't give you an example right now you know, of one that I 
pulled out of context, but I was afraid of misusing the, this Holy Scripture. And I think I've told you guys, though, we have the freedom and actually we have the responsibility to, to read the Scriptures from within the context of the tradition of the church. There's safety in that. And if you ever are reading something and you interpret it in an individualistic or non-Orthodox way, um, especially if you're coming to church services, you'll receive a correction. You'll hear a correction in the hymns or in the teaching or in the class. Or if you tell me something and I think it's you know, inaccurate, I'll go, you know, that's not, I don't think that's what that means. Let's talk about it. Or if we're not sure, we can look it up. There's commentaries from the fathers of the church. But don't be afraid of the scripture. And St. Theophon actually enjoins us in particular to, to seek out and to familiarize with the, the Psalms, which have always been the prayer book of the church, and to find certain ones, like if there, if there are certain ones that, that are meaningful to you, he says, memorize them. Memorize a psalm. Then you won't even have to have your Bible with you in order to pray that psalm. Start with one. And he says, start with prayers, you know, simple prayers. And then if you can, I'm not good. I don't trust myself. I don't have a great memory. Um, and so I always, that's why I always carry at least a little prayer book with me. He says, memorize your prayers. If, because even if, you know, they take your prayer book away from you, you'll still have those prayers. You'll still have the, that manner in which to approach prayer. And actually, a really powerful example of that is, um, I haven't spoken with you guys a lot. I was, on a, I was kind of on a bender for a while talking about uh, Romanian um, Orthodox Christians who suffered under communism. There are many who have been profoundly influential in my life and inspiring. And many of them who are thrown into prison camps. <clears throat> the priests had memorized the liturgy. And so someone would, they'd have one of the Orthodox prisoners lean over, they'd get a little bread, and if they couldn't get any wine or juice or something, they'd use water, whatever they had to do. Someone would get on their hands and knees and serve as the altar, or lay down, they use their chest, and from memory, they would serve the divine liturgy in their prison cells. Makes me want to memorize the divine liturgy just in case, you know. But, uh, but anyway, so these give us kind of, kind of power, but also connection. And it's, it's humbling, but it's also a tool, you know, that enables us. It, it's, it's enabling. And I'm all... I'm not about enabling you in sin, but I am about enabling you in prayer. And uh, you have to avail yourselves to the tools that are available um, to you. So, setting up a rule of prayer. A couple of you have asked me about this over time, and some of you I've worked with to develop a rule. Um, the word rule is an interesting word. When you think of Rule, well, what do, you, what do you first think of? Just in general. Like a law. Like a law or something you have, you have to do. You know, you're a requirement, almost. And I remember one of our friends who had heard that we were becoming Orthodox many years ago. 
My wife was afraid to tell some of her friends because it seemed such like a radical shift, you know. Because I had been like a jeans and t-shirt worship leader, you know, for a long time. And, uh, and then we shifted over to basically like the most, for- was the most formal type of Christianity you could. So the first question we got is, isn't orthodoxy really rule-oriented? Ooh. Well, kind of. I mean, they're like there are a lot of things you, you do. And, but the word rule, if you think about it this way, if you add an, an R on there, what do you get? Ruler. And what does a ruler do? It's a measure. It's a way of measuring something. A measurement or a guideline. And when I talk to people about prayer rule, um, another word for it is, um, in Greek, is a... Canona, or a canon. You hear the word canon a lot in Orthodoxy. Canon is like a set form of something. But I like, I actually like, as an English speaker, I like the Latin word from which the word rule comes from. And it's a regular. Regular. From which we get the word regular. They call it like a rule of prayer, like regular fide, a rule of faith or something. And um, I like this because what it does is talks about what we're going for. We're aiming for not just fulfilling a requirement each day. Oh man, I have to pray. You know, I was kind of joke, like everyone thinks they want someone to tell them what to do until they're told what to do and then they don't want to do it. It's like, you know, you think you want a spiritual, a God-bearing spiritual elder to tell you what to do. And they say, okay. Pray these prayers, and you get up the next morning, you do I really have to? And the answer is no, you don't have to. You can always choose. Should you? Yeah, I should. Why should you? Because it's wonderful to pray, to enter into converse and union with God. But we forget that because our egos get in the way, and we turn all of a sudden we turn everything from something we can freely fantasize about doing, praying endlessly and freely to, oh, do I really have to like do those prayers? No. And I always tell people, no, you don't have to do anything other than like whatever your autonomic system does for you. But, uh, but anyway, I like this language of regularity because a, a rule of prayer is really something that you do with regularity. I also like to use the language of rhythm. We want to establish a rhythm of prayer in our life. And um, we should begin the day with a little prayer, end the day with a little bit of prayer. And as we talked about in our teaching group um, last month, it's better to pray for smaller amounts of time with regularity or with greater frequency than to pray for an extended period of time infrequently. Oh, I spent an hour with God, you know, five weeks ago. How about I spent five minutes with God this morning and every morning for the last month or something like that. You know, it's, it's much better to be consistent um, because that's how you develop a relationship. 
You know, if you call your grandmother every six months, you're not going to have much of a relationship. But if you check in with her every couple weeks or month, you're closer. And that's how it is. We want to be closer to God than anyone else. So we prioritize him in our lives. Now, there are many, many different ways to approach prayers and prayer books. And um, I have one. I can send it out to you. And I sent it to June. I sent it to you. I have a very simple kind of basic prayer rule that I put together for people who are starting off. And it's basically the prayers from the Antiochian website with some addition, just a couple extra little things that I've added in there. But we're talking like five, ten minutes in the morning, five, ten minutes in the evening, um, depending on you know how fast you do it. And um, I can, I'll send a link out to you. You could print it out. I don't like the idea of saying, okay, you guys need to pray, so go find a prayer book and you know, buy one. Um, it leaves it a little too open-ended, and I remember when I was becoming Orthodox, that was really that was frustrating for me. I wasn't sure what to do. And there are many, many different prayer books. And what you might do is start with the ones that I give you, and then you can look at different prayer books. There are probably 10, 12 different Orthodox prayer books with different prayers and different translations. And some people like the more formal language, you know, O thou who hast risen from the dead, glory to thee. And some people like more everyday language. O you, you know, you who have risen from the dead, glory to you. Um, people can, can integrate, you know, those different translations into their personal prayer time. I tend to try to use the language that we use at church so that I don't get tripped up between translations, you know. And uh, that's what I tried to put in my little basic prayer rule. Um, for for uh, for people who are getting started, but some people again connect with a certain translation or they like certain prayers. So you can check out different prayer books, and then after getting in a basic rhythm of prayer, then you can add some prayers that you like to it, in addition to that kind of baseline I've given you. Um, and uh, generally, what you do is you arise in the morning. Stand before the icons, if you have any, and say the prayers. And you don't have to do it in a robust, uh, ostentatious manner. You don't have to go, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory to thee, our God, glory to thee, O heavenly King, a comforter, or whatever, heavenly King, comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere. You know, as you hear different ways of, you can... What, generally, what I recommend for people actually for their prayers is um, to quietly say them. It makes you less self-conscious. Some people like chanting them, and that's, that's okay with me. But, but honestly, and the way I generally say my prayers at home is like, like this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory to thee, O God, glory to thee. O heavenly King, comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things. Not too slow. Not totally rushing it, but you know I say them frequently, so I know them. You know, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, O good one. You know, like that, just kind of gently, quietly. 
Um, so, and you just, just continue through. And if your mind wanders, try to bring it back. I find making the sign of the cross when my mind wanders helps me to refocus a little bit. And uh, so that's a really basic kind of introduction to the prayer rule. And I, I'll try to remember to send you that right away, maybe this afternoon or tomorrow. Um, if I don't remember right away, one of you can prompt me and let me know, hey, send that thing to me, send that thing out to us. Um, when you're setting up a prayer corner, you're going to want to get some icons at some point. And if you, if you look at the way the church is set up, that's usually the, the example that we use for setting up our icons. I'm not saying you, f- you follow the iconostasis, but there's a basic form that we, that we generally follow. An icon of Christ, like on the right side of the doors there, and an icon of Theotokos holding the child Christ, which is also, we often call that an, a, uh, an icon of the incarnation. The Christ and the Theotokos, just like they're set up in the church side by side, is a common starting point. Although I do have to say, if you were to come and look at my little office slash cell that I have set up, I do have just an icon of Christ in the middle that I've kind of built out from. But you go from there, and then over time, as you get to know the saints, and I would highly encourage that you, you get to know the saints. I mean, I don't want to overwhelm you with all the things that you should be doing. But, I mean, prayer, reading scripture, and reading the lives of the saints, I mean, are just priceless for us. We should try to become friends with the saints. And what happens is, as you get to know them, you're inclined toward certain ones. You must develop a, a friendship with some of the saints. And, you know, for some reason, you love St. John Chrysostom or St. Herman of Alaska. Or you really love St. Mary of Egypt or all of them. And with time, as you, as you get to know them, um, you'll acquire icons of them and add them to your, kind of add add them around to your little prayer uh, corner area. And it becomes a place where you, becomes a focal point for you. Just like the front of the church is a focal point for us. When we come here, the prayer corner becomes a prominent, a place of prominence in our home. Again, not to show it off for, you know, when people come in and, oh, Oops, my prayer corner is right in front of it. Well, you know, I do pray a lot. You know what I mean? Something, that's not, that's not the, the point at all. But, I mean, but it is a place of beauty and authenticity in our home. And the way we set up our homes is a reflection of what, who we are, what we care about. The kind of atmosphere we create in our homes. You know, if someone walks into your home and they see a Friday the 13th poster, you know, they're going to think certain things about you, you know. Or you're going to live a certain way. You're going to have a certain perspective, you know, or whatever it may be. I've never seen Friday the 13th, by the way. Um, do you guys know what that is? So oh, an old horror movie. Maybe it's, I, I've dated myself. I think it's from the 80s. Um, but anyway, um, and again, as we're, as, as we're trying to create it, you know, connect the dots between what we do here and what we do at home, we create a, a space in which it's appropriate for us to go to, to pray, to worship. And, uh, 
And as we develop, as we have families too, a place where we go as a family, a place of, you know, focus, a focal point in our homes. Okay? You guys doing okay? Any questions so far? Any practical questions on based on what I've talked about? It's a little frustrating as you're being... I mean, because a lot of it feels, feels and seems so new. Like I said, you don't know what you should or shouldn't do. And if you have questions, send me a note. Or ask me. Just catch me you know, after a service or something. And, uh, and I'll, help, I'll help provide some guidance. And if, and if I don't feel strongly, if I don't believe it's that big of a deal, I'll say, why don't you... It's okay for you to choose you know, a prayer that you like or something like that. So, yeah, what's your question? Uh... So about the icon corner, yeah. following the example of that Anastasis, would you try to have it facing east as well? So yeah, so ideally, you would have it facing and on an east-facing wall, if you can. But it just doesn't always work out, work out, because of the the layout of your apartment or the room that you decide to use. And so then you have, but uh, one of my friends kind of calls a liturgical east. Whichever direction you're facing, okay, it's got a liturgical east. He called it, but um, but if you can, but we have icons. I mean, I have one that's you know facing one direction, and I have another icon corner that's facing another one, just because of the layout of our house. So, um, but that's a good question. You know, if you can, but don't. We don't need to to be hyper focused on on those things. We even have churches. You know, ideally. Every Orthodox church is facing east, but uh, it's not—it's not a canonical requirement. I have a friend who's who um, is in a church that you know they bought like an old Lutheran church or something, and it's you know I don't know if it's facing west or something, you know, and that's how it is. So you know you can't have the altar right at the entrance where people have to come and walk around it, so they have to use what they have. But that's a good question. Um, there are many websites for purchasing icons and, um, you know, don't go overboard with it. Be patient and, you know, and sometimes icons find their way to you too. I, I heard one, one person once say about converts to orthodoxy, more books, less reading, more icons, less praying. And that's not how we want it to be. We want it to be books and reading and icons and praying. You know, the icons are there, not just, you know, just to be there on their own. But all of these are things that we, that we use uh, to draw near to, to Christ. Um, so um, there, are, there are a few online sites that are, that are really good. Um, and maybe I'll send, out, send this out to you, some links. to. There's a place called Uncut Mountain Supply that's really good for icons or legacy icons. Those are the two that I use most often. You have to be careful sometimes because there are some weird groups out there too. There are what you might call like pseudo-Orthodox groups that call themselves Orthodox, but they're not actually canonical. They're not in communion. And some of them, like there's... There's a place called, they have a good, a great name, Monastery Icons. But it's run by like this kind of like Hindu group that's tried to inter- integrate Orthodoxy and Hinduism together. And there, it's probably not worth sending your money to, to, to a, like a, 
a strange fringe group like that, even though, even though they might have some nice icons, I would recommend supporting you know, actual Orthodox monasteries um, or uh, retailers, you could call them. And uh, there are monasteries that sell icons. And also, of course, we keep some downstairs in our little parish bookstore. Um, so if you have any questions about those acquiring icons or anything, let me know. Another thing that we often do is next to having an icon or a couple is a, a light source. And I do a little teaching on um, the, the meaning of the vigil lamps, which I don't know if I've done it yet, this cycle. I lose, I've been losing track of which cycles of classes that I've done that in, but, um, but I'll do that again. But you have, um, you have a little natural light source. And really, it, it, it's like a reminder of, of the living flame of Christ. Um, and it helps illuminate the icon itself. And it's also a, a flickering living flame, you know, is, is a, a reminder of our call to constantly prayer, to constantly be burning in our love for God. It's actually a pious custom that some people do to have uh, an, a little oil lamp at home, a little olive oil lamp, and to keep it going 24-7. Not all of us can do that. So it's, it's nice to at least get it going during your prayer time, and if you have to put it out when you leave. It could be a candle or it could be a little, a little uh, oil lamp. It's, I, let me go grab a little, um, a little example that you might have um, at home. I like using olive oil um, because it's, it, burns, it burns long and pretty clean. Um, it's traditional also to use olive oil. And... Uh, you, you can fill up a little container, and we even have these little, they're called float, float wicks. Or, um, you have a little cork float with a wick that goes through it, and uh, you, just, you just light it, pull the wick through every, you know, every day or two, depending on how long it's been burning. And uh, anyway, you could have something like this just sitting you know, on a little table in front of your icons, or you can buy, there are different, different kinds of these like vigil lamp holders. These are fancy ones that we have around the perimeter of the nave, but there are simple ones that are not that expensive. You can get at different places. I don't know if we have any downstairs. Maybe we should get some. It's nice to have those because if you were to walk around my house, you would see at least a few locations where I have these little hanging vigil lamps that we light at different times. And uh, so... You can also order beeswax candles if you like having beeswax candle, or like we use around the perimeter, um, we we have little paraffin, white paraffin candles too. We mostly use those in the church because we change the color of the lamps for the different liturgical seasons, which is is a whole no, another entire catechism catechism topic that I could go into is the liturgical colors, which is a fun one. But we're red right now 
because, does, well, does anyone know what red signifies in the liturgical, or could you guess? Blood or flesh. And because we're in the season of the incarnation, red always signifies blood or flesh. So on feasts of the cross, when we, when we commemorate the cross of Christ or of the crucifixion, you know, we, we go red because of Christ's blood. But also for the Feast of the Incarnation, because he took on the flesh, um, wherein we, we use red. So we change the colors of our lamps. And oil lamps can get a little messy, so these you blow them out and they solidify, and then we can change them out with different, with different colors. But... Um, Anyway, so having a light source is, is good. And then I have some tips that have been put together by a certain nun, Mother Pelagia, um, of a Russian community in France that I want to share with you. And maybe I'll send this out to you as well, just so you have it. But it's, it's to create, again, this, the idea of kind of how we carry ourselves throughout the day at home and um, in our lives in general. So she starts with, like I said, prayers begin in the morning and we end the day in the evening with prayers, either together as a family or individually. A blessing or grace, as is often called, is said by the head of the family before a meal. Anytime you eat, you pause and you give thanks. Uh, you ask the Lord to bless, to bless the meal. And the traditional, actually, the, the traditional a format is to ask the Lord's blessing on the food before you receive, before you eat it, and then to thank Him for it after. Have I talked to you guys about this yet? It's the exact thing that we do in the liturgy. I would love to say that liturgy, liturgy teaches us everything. We bring out what God has given us. In the case of the liturgy, bread and wine. We ask God to bless them. He blesses them. And then we receive them. And then we thank him for what we've received. The way that you will ask the blessing for food, depending on, I mean, I know people get, they get a little mixed up when they're like, they're at work, they're going to eat lunch and they're worried about making the sign of the cross. You can do it in a, in a, um, what's the word? You know, in a modest way. You don't have to do it to draw attention to yourself. And You know, I remember like just kind of make a little simple sign of the cross, kind of bow before, say a little prayer quietly. Um, but uh, the way that you kind of formally bless food as an Orthodox Christian without a priest present, okay, is you say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if a priest is there, he says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. But if there's no priest, you say, through the prayers of our holy fathers, no glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. That's right. Now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. O Lord Jesus Christ, bless the food and drink of thy servants. For thou alone art holy always, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. So, 
Um, again, the difference is the priest, when a priest is present, it's given as his prerogative to kind of say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son. And if the priest isn't there, you say glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. O Lord Jesus Christ, bless the food and drink of thy servants. Allow alone art holy always, now and ever and unto ages of ages. So maybe more things I need to send you all. Um, and with time, you know, you just, you, you know, an instruction you'll learn. But we always ask God's blessing before anything enters into our body. Ask for God's blessing on it. Otherwise, it's not worth putting in there. I like to call it eating eucharistically. Everything is from Him. And so if it's from Him and we're acknowledging that, then it should be from Him and unto Him, unto His glory in our lives. On entering a room where there's an icon, um, it's appropriate to cross yourself. You kind of incline yourself toward that icon. Or, you know, depending on the, the environment, you might even venerate it. You, know? you come in. When you walk into my house, you'll see an icon of Christ and the Theotokos right inside the door and a cross. But there's a little table in front of it, so you can't venerate them. But if you were to walk into my house and see them, it's appropriate just to make the sign of the cross. Um, when leaving your home, make the sign of the cross and pray for God's protection. We make the sign of the cross a lot in the Orthodox Church. We use verbal prayer, but we also use nonverbal prayer. And our primary way of nonverbal prayer is by crossing ourselves. Um, when you see a priest or an abbot or an abbess, you always ask for their blessing. You say, Father, bless, or bless, or your blessing. Or, as some of you do, you just, you just come up, it's kind of, you know, another form of nonverbal communication. You just come up with your hands, you know, usually your right hand on your left. And if a priest or abbess sees you coming like that, they're going to give you a blessing and you kiss their hand. And we'll talk more specifically about why we kiss the, the hand and, and stuff like that in another session. But you can say, Father bless or your blessing or bless. It would be appropriate to do that just anywhere out in public. Oh, yeah. Like, I always, I always tease people. Some of you have heard me. It's like the true test. If you bump into me at the grocery store, whether or not you ask for my blessing. And some people will just come running at me. Like, Father, your blessing. But one time, someone saw me. I walked into the store, and they were like... And they took off around the corner. Someone, I, because like, they knew, like, oh no, if, if we, if I see him, I'm going to either ask for the blessing or not. It was kind of funny, but I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty gracious about that. But it is, it kind of is the test. Like, if, you know, you see the priest and ask their blessing. And uh, if, um, when you see the priest or, you know, the abbess or the abbot of a monastery and you get their blessing, it's appropriate to kind of do it when you first see them. And if you're together for a while and then you're leaving, you can get the blessing, you know, when you leave too. But you don't have to do it like five times in between or anything like that, you know. Just kind of as a greeting, like a hello and goodbye is appropriate depending on what's going on. 
Um, if we're together in the fellowship hall and, you know, you've, you've said hi to me and gotten my blessing and I'm sitting there talking with a group of people, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to come over. But some people really, they, they, love, they love getting the blessing and they really do believe that it conveys something of the grace of God to them. And so they go out of their way. And it's not like, you know, it makes me feel like I'm, you know, some like magical authority who has the ability to do something really special in their lives. It's just, it's really actually, it's humbling to a priest too. Um, because again, it's like, the, so the hand, the hand of the priest is, it's said that the hand of the priest is not his own hand because it performs, it, it, it's the hand that performs the holy mysteries. The, the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And so my, when you venerate the hand of the priest, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like venerating an icon of Christ. I like to say, despite me, you know, oftentimes <laughs> because of my imperfection. But, um, but it, it's something that's a deep part of the tradition of the church. And you'll see, like, deference to people in authority. Um, loving those who are your leaders and trusting, learning to trust them in the church is a big part of divesting ourselves of our ego, too. So, anyway, it's, it's a deep part of the, the, the living tradition and experience of the church. Before going to bed, make the sign of the cross and pray for protection during sleep. And I like to encourage people, as you're going to bed... Um, Say the Jesus prayer for a while, quietly. That's a great way to go to sleep. And some people will have their prayer rope, you know, and they'll say the Jesus prayer. And then I tried that a few times, but I kept losing my prayer rope in the bed. And then the next morning I couldn't find it for a while. So I'll, I'll just kind of lay there quietly as I'm going to sleep and just say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me for a little while um, before I nod off to sleep. Do you guys need something in here? Is that it? Is that your quote? Oh, good. Okay, good. So basically, pray and make the sign of the cross a lot is what we're going for, you know. Um, when you hear of anyone's death, Immediately say a prayer for them. We say memory eternal. Um, and I'll talk more about that another time. But you'll hear it in the churches, um, in the church services. Um, that's the language we use. May their memory be eternal. Um, if discussing or planning the, for the future, it's common to hear people say, God willing. We really mean it. Like, I'll see you tonight, God willing. You know, because we really mean we want to totally entrust ourselves to the will of God. And it's not a form of, you know, empty, empty virtue signaling or something. You just, oh, God willing, you know, because I'm holy or something like that. But it's, no, we really are entrusting ourselves to God. Another similar one that a friend of mine who's an older priest does a lot is you ask him, how are you? And while it's not grammatically correct, you know, how are you? He's like, thank God. At first I went, what? That's kind of a weird answer. You know, how are you? He didn't tell me, well, I am thanking God right now, you know, but how are you? Thank God. 
And he saw my little look on my face and he goes, that's the best answer when someone asks you how you are. So if you ever ask me how I am, I'll usually say, thank God, at least. And then, or thank God, you know, people are asking me how I'm feeling. I'm feeling better or something. But thank God comes first. Um, if, you're, if you're offended or hurt, if you have offended or hurt anyone, as soon as possible, ask for forgiveness. Forgive me. And do what you can to take the blame yourself. Rather than seeking to blame others first before you finally come to the conclusion that it's you who needs to repent of it or ask for forgiveness. But whatever I do, you know, we're taught in the, in the church to, to cover the sins of others, not reveal them but to long for our sins to be revealed so that we can be purified and drawn, drawn near because the, the sins in our lives are, are what separate us from God and especially our judgments of other people. So forgive me, forgive me. I have a, There's a monastic elder that, I, that I'm very, very influenced by named, named Father Zacharias. And in the course of any time he gives any talk or homily or anything, he he always ends it with, forgive me. And it's so, it's so gentle and it's so authentic because you can tell when he's speaking, he thinks that he has nothing to say other than what he's been given by others, by the church, by his elder, by the saints. And he's, so he's just, he's trying to, in his own humble way, speak a word, even though he feels like he, he himself has nothing to give. And so he always asks for forgiveness. Please forgive me. If something goes well, always say thank God or glory to God. Again, even if you say it to yourself or to someone that you know, but you don't have to go around, you know, being a weirdo to your coworkers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, glory to God for all things, Joe. You know what I mean? Like, huh? You know, but... You, but, you know, and you can say, depending on the context you're in, you can say, someone's asking, you could say, how are you? And you could say, oh, you know, I'm really thankful today, even though things are tough. You know what I mean? You, you don't always have to throw, throw God around. It's okay. I mean, you might say, you know, thank God I'm doing well. And you're not using it in a vain way. But even you can say, I'm just, you know, thankful in the midst of it all today. And in your mind, you're saying, I'm thankful to God. So all of this stuff about, thank God, God willing, glory to God, you know, it's, it's not about having a little, you know, you pull out which, whichever three by five card comes out of your pocket and just throw the little orthodox terminology out there. Um, and I do like to remind people, you know, especially if you're excited or zealous, don't be a weirdo, you know, around other people. Um, be humble, and if you need tips on how not to be a weirdo, I can talk to you about that. Um, but we also want to be authentic when we're thankful to God and we're trying to glorify Him in everything that we're doing. And there was a time, like when I had a secular job, I didn't go around saying God all the time, hardly ever. But, uh, but I was trying to be like a humble servant of others in the workplace. And... It didn't happen very often. I would talk to people about my, my faith at times. They knew I was an Orthodox Christian and that I was a, involved in my church. But 
I remember, I remember just, just one time, it's that moment that you know, every Christian longs for, for someone to say, there's something different about you. What is it? Oh, well, there is something different about me. Yes, I'm a Christian. You know, God has chosen me and changed my life, you know, or something. But, um, but, but there, was a, there was a really tender moment where there was a guy that I had worked with and I had developed a relationship with him. We kind of cared for one another, you know, in the workplace. And one day he did say, there is something like a little different. Do you, do you go to church or anything? Like, what, what is it? And we sat down on the curb and talked for a little bit. And he basically told me, yeah, I think religious people are all about sucking money out of others. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm sorry that that's been your experience. You know, I think that there are people who are, you know, honest about their faith. But anyway, he didn't end up here, unfortunately. But you know what? We, We each get to participate in the work that God is doing in the lives of others in some little way. And we don't always get to see the fruit that comes as a result of that labor. And that's a part of the the humble trust that we have in seeking to do God's will. We want to be the harvesters. But, you know, what did Christ say to the disciples after he met the Samaritan woman? And she ran at the well, whom we call St. Fotini. She ran into the town. She said, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever did, you know, I've ever done. And, uh, And the people come out and they're like believing in Christ and the disciples are pumped about it. They're really excited. And, and then Christ says to them basically, by the way, this, you're doing the easy job. There are many people who came before you who watered and tilled. You're basically reaping from the work that other people have done. And there's this humble watering and tilling that we can do in the lives of others. And we don't always get to see we don't need to. It's important, more important that God knows what's going on than I do. So, um, anyway, that's a little tangent on just, you know, I'm telling you to say things like glory to God and thank God, and you should think them. They should be a part of your, your thought life and your inner life, and they should be able to be expressed authentically at times, and especially when we're together, you know. Um, if something turns out badly, if there's pain, sickness, or any kind of troubles, say glory to God for all things. And since God is all good, and, and though we might not understand, undoubtedly they've been permitted by God. If you begin some task, ask for God's help. Lord, help me. Or if you make a plan, you could say, you know, may it be blessed. Like, let's get together on... Wednesday. Sound good? Yeah, may it be blessed. Which is really just asking for God's blessing because he's the only one who truly blesses. Any time you go anywhere, anytime you set out on any journey, make the sign of the cross. You get in the car to drive somewhere. We take our vehicles for granted and we, you know, we think that we're so safe in them, but actually it's, it's a huge several thousand pound piece of metal. And while it is, and you know this, John, they, even when they're not going that fast, they have a, a lot of power. And we're putting ourselves and others at risk, but also we're setting out on a, 
on a journey, even if it's a short journey to the grocery store and back, we may have some providential encounters. There may be someone who needs a smile, who needs a greeting that evening at the grocery store. Hi, how are you? Sometimes people feel like, oh, another person to look away from me. And it's okay for you to be that weird person who says, hi, good evening, and then keeps moving in the grocery store. Okay? Um, they're, so set out to do God's will and make the sign of the cross before you go on a trip. Um, for a longer and more difficult journey, there are prayers that are said by a priest. You know, you're going to be going across country or on a road trip or something. It's totally appropriate to ask the priest to say prayers before a journey with you. And actually, I just had someone right after, right after the service this morning say, Hey, Father, before we go on our trip, can, can you say um, travel prayers for us? We'll come to Vespers and on Wednesday. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Just a little, a little prayer. I give them the blessing, sprinkle them with holy water, which we'll be talking about in, around Theophany time, holy water, and, uh, and send them on their way, asking that every good purpose of God would be fulfilled in their journey and that he would bring them back safely. And if there's a possibility of a future trouble of any kind, um, take time to, to pause and pray about it. And when you receive a blessing after prayer, always remember to give thanks. We so desperately want what we think that we need at any given time. And then when that need is met, a lot of times we forget to express gratitude for what it is that's been given to us. One of my favorite little reminders about that is in the priest's prayer book, there's a prayer before surgery Basically saying that, that God, asking that God guide the, the hands and the means used to accomplish the healing of the person before they go in for surgery. And then there are prayers of thanksgiving after surgery. And I will tell you, many, many people have come and asked me for prayers before surgery. And hardly any have ever returned for the prayers of thanksgiving. And I always tell them, if your surgery goes well, come back and say the prayers of thanksgiving with me. Reminds us of those 10 lepers, you know, whom Christ healed. And how, do, you know, do you remember the story? And how many returned out of the 10 to say thanks to him? One. That's one of the many, that's one of the, the gospel readings that comes around in the liturgical cycle. But it's an important reminder for us. Um, so give thanks you know, when a prayer is answered. And sometimes no answer is the answer too. So I thank you for not giving me the answer I want, but maybe teaching me patience, Lord. In all things, give thanks to God. Okay? So, creating the orthodox ethos in the home and in your life. There are some thoughts. And sometimes I'll hit you with a lot of different things. And you're not going to completely internalize all of it all at once. Keep that in mind. Okay? I'll, I'll give you a lot of information or teachings and they'll be kind of, they'll be out there or they'll be kind of rattling around in your mind, but it, it'll take time for you to develop that, uh, 
that manner of, of life. Again, especially because like, we haven't been living this way for 20, 30 years, however old you are. Um, so we're going to switch over to our book and finish the, the, the chapter on creation. Today we have enough time, I think. And so if you guys kind of want to share, hand them around. I don't think anyone has tuned in uh, to our... No, I'm the only participant online, so I'm just going to end my session here on Zoom. And, um, okay. Yeah, it's, so you get into the creation. Like, we're, I don't... The thing is, I have this up on my... Um, on my computer, so I'm not sure. But there's a section, Proverbs 9, 10. It's, it's quoting, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, beginning of wisdom. Do you guys remember about where we were? We talked about everything being created ex nihilo. God is not just the arranger of pre-created matter. And then there's a quote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you know where that 67. is? Page 67. Okay. And actually, we finished that paragraph that begins with Proverbs 9.10, and we're picking up with the ancient philosophers. Okay, you guys got it? Great. All right. And let's see, what time is it? Let me make sure I... It is... 1.42. Okay. I need to... uh, Yeah. Okay, I need to stay focused so we can finish this chapter. So I'll do my best. The ancient philosophers took great pride in calling man a microcosm. That is, a little world in miniature, a world in miniature. But St. Gregory of Nyssa pointed out that the same could be said of a mouse. What makes man special, unique in all of the created universe, is, is his creation in the image of God. According to Father George, Kapsanus, abbot of the monastery of St. Gregory on Manathos. He says, made according to the image of God signifies both the origin and the goal of our existence. So far as we image forth the wise, creative God, so far do we discover in ourselves the charisms or the graces of knowledge and of creativity. And those are two things that are hallmarks of, of man, Knowledge and creativity. Um, as we talked about a, while, uh, a session or two ago, we talked about man as being co-creator with God, as having been created in the image of God. But what does this mean? So if man is not God or a part of God, in what way is he created in God's image? This question admit, um, admits of no simple answer. For throughout his, history, the fathers of the church have given many different answers. Many have said that the image of God resides in man's soul. Others have identified the image of God with man's free will or his ability to govern the earth. And in a sense, all of these are correct. Perhaps it's best to say that it's the totality of man's being which constitutes the image of God. In other words, the image of God is in us, uh, in in us is everything which makes us unique personal beings. And it is. So then you could kind of, you know, you could riff on that, so to speak. I mean, just like we talk about God and we talk about God's, man, God's manner, God's attributes, the way that God has revealed himself, 
But when we talk about God, it doesn't encompass God. You know? Because God is always beyond the limits of the finite human mind. It reminds me of a little story that I like to tell often about um, St. Sophroni, who is the... um, who was the founder of a monastery in England, St. John the Baptist Monastery. And he was giving a talk at a university. And he was talking about God and the spiritual life. And, and someone said to him, some you know, snarky college student, university student said, well, you, you just tell me what God is. And you know, you can say the right thing at the right time to the right person. And St. Sophroni looked at him and he said, first, first, and he was very gentle and humble. You tell me what man is. Can you tell me what man is? And the man was struck silent because really man is a mystery. Man and woman. Married guys want to go, yeah, women are, that's for sure. But... um, but anyway, but we, but we are, there's a mystery. There's a depth. Because we were created for union with the uncreated. That's the hallmark of God's love for us. And that's why he became, you know, became man and died and resurrected and did everything that he did, which we'll talk about. But, um, but anyway, he, he created us in his image, which makes man himself a mystery. And so you can talk about what it means to have been created with that, that dignity, with that indelible, indelible image. But, uh, but I don't think you can totally describe it. I think you can only actually give yourself over to it and begin to experience what it means to have been created in, in the image of God by seeking to to unite yourself with God, which is really what the church is aiming for, (laughs) leading us into, hopefully, you know, (laughs) in a very real way. (laughs) So we've already seen that God is first and foremost, I'm not supposed to do tangents, otherwise I'm going to run out of time. Okay. Oh yeah, it's 147. Yeah, I need to stay focused. Okay. Because we have three, like, three, three elements of this that we're going to talk about here. So Um, We've already seen that God is first and foremost personal existence. Three persons. And he's the one for whom um, to be is to love. God is love, we say. St. John um, the theologian. So thus, it is man's ability to enter into personal relationships and his ability to love that makes him a being like unto God. Man is, in other words, created in the image of the Holy Trinity. For man to be what he was created to be, to fulfill his cosmic destiny, he must attain unto the likeness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So therefore, man is an inherently relational being. He cannot be conceived as an individual. I like to call it this myth of autonomy. You know, you see someone like I saw a guy with a tattoo on his fingers once that said self-made. There is no such thing. I mean, I get what he's, you know, you, you work hard, you kind of, you know, you, you reap what you sow, you know. Some people really succeed in the world, but, but honestly, there's no way to do it totally autonomously or separate from others. 
Even when we work really hard, when you're a visionary, when you're creative, when you bring others on board, you, you can't do it alone. It's the myth of autonomy. There's nothing that we do that is not dependent on other people or does not, not in relation to affected by or affecting other people. In the words of the English clergyman and poet John Donne, no man is an island entire of himself. For man to be is to be in relation to others. Specifically, this means that man is created to relate to God, to his fellow man, and the physical world. So more than anything else, man is created to be in relation, a relationship of love with God who made him. St. Athanasius the Great wrote, for of what use is existence to the creature, creature if it cannot know its maker? And truly man's sojourn on earth would be pointless if he had no way of knowing and loving the one who gave him being. God did not create man as a robot or a pet or, as I like to say sometimes, an automaton or something. But out of his infinite love and wisdom, he bestowed upon man the capacity to know and love his maker as a friend and father. This is the center of man's being, the purpose for which he was created. Without this loving relationship with God, man is not fully human, but he's like, like an empty shell, destined to return to the earth from which he was made. As blessed Augustine said, our hearts can have no rest until they find rest in thee. Probably the most famous quotation of St. Augustine ever. So created to be in relation with God. Second, man is created to be in a relationship of love with, with his fellow men and women. Okay, <laughs> Mankind in relation to one another, humans. God said it's not good that man should be alone in Genesis 2. And with these words, God ruled out the possibility that man was created to be an isolated individual and a prisoner of his own ego. There is no, there is no life for the, the human person in and of itself. Even though we have a very high anthropology and we would say that each person is indeed unique and unrepeatable. But that's not to elevate one person above others. But it's to say in God's great love and creativity, he creates a diversity of persons to, to live Life in communion with one another, it's wonderful. But it's also really hard <laughs> because we're fallen, you know, and we're selfish and we need healing. That's why we call the church a spiritual hospital. We're all broken patients in need of healing here. So just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwell together in an unbreakable communion of love, so man created in the image of the Holy Trinity is meant to dwell in unity and harmony with his fellow man. The most famous passage from the book of Psalms on this point is Psalm 132. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For man to be what he's created to be, he must love all people. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Thus also our Lord enjoins us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So every rationalistic philosophy, every form of humanism that exalts the individual, and considers him to be the absolute value in life, is an unholy caricature of human life and leads man only to hell. It was this existential realization for me, I think, that led me to orthodoxy. I was a Christian so fixated on the 
the desire for individual salvation. I just wanted, wanted to be saved. Get to heaven. And it, it created a, a weird, flawed view of salvation in relation to others. I only need God. I don't need others. Because God's going to save me and get me into heaven. And some others will be there. And some will not. Some will be saved like me. That's great. But that was about it. I mean, it's a very, like, it, it was weird. Because it, it didn't inform me as to how to relate to other people. I had failed to see the reality, to acknowledge the reality that we're created for one another. We need each other. It struck me deep within the core of my being. Any person I encounter is someone for whom I was created to be in relation with somehow. You know, I was created to be in relation with this person in some way. I mean, I'm best friends with everybody. And I started realizing like how interdependent our lives are, how much we need one another, and not just on a like a theological or philosophical level. But I realized like at work, like I'm not gonna get paid unless the lady who issued my check like writes my check and puts it into my account. Like, wow. I'm thankful that she's there to do that. Like I need her. I could say it's my right to get paid, but if there's no one there to pay me, then I'm not going to get paid. And if there's no boss that hired me and trusted me to do the work that I'm doing, and you know, in whom I have a with whom I have a relationship, and I'm trying to do my best, then I'm not going to get paid for doing what I'm doing. And so, even just on a basic level, wow, okay. And then a team of coworkers that I'm working with in order to accomplish a common goal because I can't do it all alone. So I started becoming, it really challenged my sense of identity. And I started really being, becoming thankful for the people in my life. Even though our relationships weren't perfect, I realized we were bound up in, with one another and that we actually did need one another. And I didn't need them to go around saying, oh, I need you too. And it was Jeremy back then, not Father Jeremy. Oh, Jeremy, I need you. Oh, thank you. I know you do. I need you too. It's not about being, again, weird or emotional or silly. But, I mean, on a deeper level, our lives are interrelated. We, we are interdependent. I became really thankful. Thankful for my parents, too, who gave me life. And then I realized this, oh, Why? Are our lives interdependent? Because even though we're doing it in a worldly or secular way, we need each other. We're not even talking about God here, but on a most, the most basic level, we depend on one another. And so, uh, and it was really humbling, you know, and, and sweet to come to that realization. And then I realized that that in the as Christians, then too. We need each other all the more. And one of the most famous little teachings of the church about salvation is that we, we sin alone. Our sin is what separates us from God and others. But we're saved together. We're saved corporately. The only thing that we actually do 
truly and purely individualistically is sin. Our sin affects other people, but our salvation is accomplished together. There is no such thing as individual salvation because what is salvation? To enter into communion with God and what does it mean to enter into communion with God? Also to enter into communion with one another. That makes sense? Sorry, I just, I just go on and on sometimes. Okay, so St. Maximus, the confessor who lived in the 6th and 7th century, sums up the matter quite succinctly, and he says basically what I told, just told you. He says, Do not disdain the commandment of love, because by it you will be a son of God. If you transgress, which means you go against it, you will become a son of hell. And again, hell for us is just is separation from God, and we'll talk about heaven and hell later. Finally, man is created um, to be in relationship of love with the physical world. So with God, with one another, and to be in relation with the world. That's not to say man is to love the world as an end in itself, but that the world is to become a part of his loving relationship with God. Because, you know, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. He didn't say, you know, dominate and destroy and do whatever the heck you want with the world. But he gave man an authority of love over, over creation. So man was created last as the crown and glory of the whole creation. The world was created for man so that through his wise and loving use of it, it might be a means of communion with God. This does not mean that man has a right to abuse the world and treat it as a disposable commodity, but it does mean that the world was created to be man's servant. The proper relationship of man to the world is a sacramental one. Man is is to receive the world as God's gift and offer it back to God, along with his whole life in a sacrifice of love and obedience. And again, we see this image that, like I said earlier, the the liturgy teaches us everything. We receive life from God. He gives it to us to do with it really as we please. If we ask him what it's for, he says, well, it's it's to be in communion with me. And so we turn around and we say, well, I take what you've given to me and I give it back to you then. And then he blesses it and he transforms it into a life of love. 159, okay, can I fin? Yes, I can. Two more paragraphs, short paragraphs. Man's creation in the image of the Holy Trinity means that man's very being and the way he is to live out his life is designed to image forth the life of God himself. In this way, man attains under the likeness of God. So we're created in the image, but to be like God, that's so, so we were given the ability to be like God, deeply implanted within us, And in our manner of living, we can become God-like. So man attains under the likeness of God. Just as the eternal Son of God, the perfect image of the Father, receives his being from the Father and offers all that he is back to the Father in love. So man created in the image of God is meant to offer all that he is back to God in love. Not because God gives us what what, what we have so that he can just take it back. That's not at all but so that we can share it. But the only way we can share our being with God is for him to give it to us absolutely 
and for us with our own free will to, to give it back to him in return. In this way, man's being is established in the eternal and perfect love of God. This is what truly defines man's being and gives purpose to his life. As we've read in the book of Genesis, however, and as we know from personal experience, man has rejected his God-created vocation. Vocation just means calling of communion with the All-Holy Trinity and has failed to achieve the purpose for which he was created. And so this failure to respond to God's love in kind is known as the fall or the original sin, which he will address in the next chapter. So, but for now, for now, rather than crying about the fall, let's celebrate joyfully what God created us for, the great glory for which we were created and the true value of our lives as persons created the image of God. And we'll end reading this uh, quote from St. Gregory Palamas. He says, Man was deemed worthy by God of such honor and providential care that before him this entire sensible world came into being for his sake. And for him, right from the foundation of the world, the kingdom of heaven was prepared for his sake. And counsel concerning him was taken beforehand, and he was formed by the hand of God and according to the image of God. Okay, let's end with a little prayer together. And we'll talk about the fall next time. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Christ, our God, who at all times and in every hour in heaven and on earth are worshipped and glorified. Who art long-suffering, merciful, and compassionate, who lovest the just and showest mercy upon the sinner, who callest all to salvation through the promise of blessings to come. O Lord, in this hour, receive our supplications and direct our lives according to thy commandments. Sanctify our souls, hallow our bodies, correct our thoughts, cleanse our minds, deliver us from all tribulation, evil, and distress. Encompass us with thy holy angels and guided and guarded by them. We may attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of thy unapproachable glory. For thou art blessed in the ages of ages. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you all. Go in peace. Thank you for being here today. And uh, if you want to come at 6.30, we have Vespers tonight at 6.30 for St. Herman of Alaska and Divine Liturgy from 7 to 8 tomorrow morning. Do you have a lost